from Heterodox Academy. This is Half Hour of Heterodoxy. Conversations with scholars and authors. Ideas from diverse viewpoints and perspectives. Here's your host, Chris Martin. My guest today is Maria Dixon-Hall. She runs the Campus Cultural Intelligence Initiative at Southern Methodist University, and her work in cultural intelligence differs from the diversity training that's typically done on college campuses. Her work has received a great deal of coverage in national media. Maria will be one of the speakers at the second annual Heterodox Academy Conference, which will be held in New York on June 20th and 21st of this year. For more information on the conference, including the program and registration, visit heterodoxacademy.org slash conference. There will be over 300 Heterodox Academy members, community leaders, administrators, and students at the conference discussing issues around heterodoxy. Hi, Maria. Thanks for joining us on the show. I am so excited to be with you today, Chris. So you are directing the Cultural Intelligence Program at SMU. Tell me a bit about what cultural intelligence is. No, cultural intelligence actually has a long life uh, in academic circles, particularly uh, when we were looking at sending Americans abroad to do business as expats in China uh, or other countries that we had not done business with. So cultural intelligence was really a way of preparing a lot of executives who had only been steeped in American business to succeed in these new opportunities for markets. What um, we've done at SMU is we've looked at that original framework and we've said, what would happen if rather than looking abroad, we looked internally to the U.S.? And so cultural intelligence is really nothing more than managing and communicating effectively across culturally diverse um, contexts, which means it's about management, effective communication, and strategizing, um, recognizing that each person we come to has their unique cultural language. So how does this differ from diversity training? Well, diversity training is basically um, nothing more than a requirement uh, in current business today to make sure that we are managing risk, uh, managing uh, the compliance of individuals to play well together, though they may look differently. I like to say that diversity training is about getting people ready for um, dealing with different people around the table. That's really all diversity is. Um, And if you extend that to inclusion, then what inclusion is, is allowing the different people around the table to give their thoughts, their energies, their strategies, and their talents. But we really haven't had a framework that teaches the different people around the table to really work together for a common goal. And that's much different than diversity training, which is basically HR compliance. So cultural intelligence training does give you a sense of what particular cultural traits people from a particular culture have, whereas diversity training tends to skip over that. Is that fair? I would say it does. And diversity training is about um, stereotypes, don't engage in this stereotype, recognize your biases. And and it's almost like handing someone a book saying, you're getting ready to go to Japan for six weeks. Um, recognize that they don't speak the same language as you and be respectful. 
That's diversity training. Cultural intelligence says, let's make sure you understand things about the Japanese culture. Understand the difference between um, relationships in Japan the way that dinner is conducted in Japan, what might be offensive that you may not even be aware of, and allowing the Japanese to be your guide rather than some academic. So what cultural intelligence does is it says, I'm my own best guide to telling you what are the different languages I speak. And you're the best guide to tell me the different languages you speak. What diversity training says is, It says that you only speak one language, typically based on your race or maybe your gender. And cultural intelligence says you are a gumbo of languages. It really takes intersectionality to that next level, saying that just because I'm an African-American woman doesn't mean that I speak one language. I'm also an adoptive mother. I'm a Gen Xer. Um, I'm a professor. I'm a member of the clergy. I'm politically moderate. I'm theologically liberal. All of those things create unique languages that if you're not aware of, knowing one part of my language means you might turn off another part. Okay. So you've said in some of your talks that people tend to dislike diversity training, which is one of the reasons you wanted to move to something else. Um, Have you been looking at whether people like or dislike cultural intelligence programming at SMU to some degree? Well, we have. And that was really important. And that was one of the selling points that my president wanted to make sure that we understood was, is this just another, is this just putting it in a different bag and then submitting people to the same thing? I think one of the things that diversity training has really failed at doing is one, it gives you a lot of diagnoses, but it doesn't give you many prescriptions doesn't give you really any action items. What we have found that people at SMU really enjoy is that they walk away with skills. They walk away with knowledge and they walk away with the ability to create a strategy. So I think the thing that I would share with you is our hidden scripts training, which is our implicit bias version, um, has been booked solid for the last since Jan- end of January, I can't schedule enough sessions. Um, we have faculty, staff, and students, uh, entire schools at our university. Our law school spent a whole day running all of their their dean and their assistant deans and their professors and their staff. The the business school is doing that actually on Friday. So there's been an embrace of cultural intelligence in a way that diversity training simply has not been embraced on this campus. So can you give me an example of something they might learn in that hidden scripts training that they wouldn't learn in a diversity training at another university? I think there's two things. Number one, we really get into what I consider the single story that we've learned to tell about other people. But we use a guiding framework, Chris. The framework is that we all belong to tribes. And we really are using um, the work of Joshua Green out of Harvard, um, in which he says that our tribal identities create our moral realities. And this is really different than diversity training. Um, Tribes are not bad. And that's the other thing. We belong to a lot of tribes, but some tribes are more important 
than others. Um, and so what we tell people is that own your tribes, own the tribes, own the affinities you have for your tribe, and also identify um, the anxiety that some other tribes might bring to you and understand how those tribes work in the work context, how that plays out in a budget meeting, how that plays out in a search committee meeting. So everything is really practical um, from that sense. But one of the other things people live leave with is understanding we don't try to cover every bias. We cover the four biases we see most on the university level. Affinity bias, halo and devil bias, not made here bias, and blinded spot bias. What people have said uh, particularly is they are beginning to become really aware of how affinity bias has played into search committee decisions, scholarship committee decisions, promotion decisions. And Chris, that's huge for a university, for people who are making decisions that are deciding the landscape of the university to recognize that it's not always as objective as we like to make it seem. Right. I mean, universities do have a long tradition of people hiring people who they know or hiring people by calling up a colleague and saying, hey, do you know anyone who's available right now? And you end up hiring people within your social network. So that's exactly it. But the other thing is, we like to say, well, we're hiring these people because they're the best. Um, We're hiring, you know, and we use keywords like they're such a fit for our department. Well, what makes someone a fit is because they make us feel good. All of us want to work with someone that makes us feel good, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're the best person for the job. Um, And what we do is we try to put this out on the table and have people talk about it, particularly halo effect and how that impacts promotion, how that impacts opportunities, how that impacts the way we even look at our students and talk to our students. And by halo effect, are you talking about the fact that a, ca- a candidate that does one thing really well is perceived as doing several things really well? Or are you Almost about- everything very well. I mean, in, again, in the academy, what we've tended to do is we have those individuals who are star scholars or they're star teachers. And then all of a sudden we say they must be star managers. Now, I'm going to tell you, I think I have great colleagues who teach and write very well. But management and teaching and writing are two different things. The same thing goes for students. We have students who do really well in the classroom, and we assume they're ready for leadership. Or we have students who have excelled in the classroom, who have excelled as student leaders. But when they do something wrong, rather than holding them accountable, we make excuses for them. And we coddle them. And we say, you know what, I know they'll never do it again rather than holding them to the same standard that we would another student. So halo effect is one of those things that is universal on a university campus. It impacts every single member of the campus. Now, what you're doing in terms of cultural intelligence has some similarity to the multicultural competence training that some educators have to do in the course of their graduate training, and some clinical psychologists and counseling psychologists have to do as well. Mm -hmm. Are you those or is there a contrast between what you're doing and those types of programs? Well, what we've done with Cultural Intelligence at SMU or CIQ at SMU is we've pulled from a number of disciplines. So rather than sticking just with the higher education model, we've pulled from business, 
We've pulled from sociology. We've pulled from theology. So rather than just looking at a singular framework work of multicultural education, what we've done is we've expanded that to look at executive education. We've expanded that to look at staff-employee relationships. So we've broadened that quite a bit. So yes, it looks similar and it sounds similar because there are elements of it. But I think one of the differences that I would argue that we offer is that we're also talking about um, creating a framework that not just faculty, I mean, that just not students and student affairs professionals utilize, but also we can utilize in faculty development, that we can utilize in staff development, that we can then put into the processes of tenure, promotion, leadership, mentoring, and all and those things, which unfortunately for multicultural education tends to be, remain solidly within student affairs. And one of the things that you've done that has received a lot of coverage is the Ask Me Anything survey because it's unique. Yeah. And this is where people can literally ask any question they have about people from a certain ethnic group or culture. Um, very blunt questions. I'm reading from an article here, but some of the questions that have been asked yeah. are, why are white people trying to get darker? What's the difference between Koreans and Chinese? Why are black women so angry? Tell me a bit about how that program worked. Well, it worked too well, first of all. Um, but one of the things I recognize is that most times we are laboring under a fear of asking what we don't know. And I have three kids Chris, I have a six, a seven, and a nine-year-old. And I find that they are fearless about asking questions. And that's the only way that they know the world. And I realized that when I would correct them and say, that's not a polite question, what I was taking away from them was a means by which to learn the world that they're in, to get information from the people they needed to get information from, so that they didn't make the mistakes that I might make or their father might make. And so we brought that to uh, some of my students and I said, if you could ask anything, what would you ask? And it stunned me what they really wanted to know. And so I said, let's try this larger and see what is it our campus wants to know about each other? We walk past each other every day. Without fear, what would you ask? It has worked extremely well. Um, and when we got pushback um, from a lot of external players, um, from a university across the city, the biggest defenders I had were our students. Our students who said, this was the first time I got to ask these questions in a safe place. Um, and so through all the television coverage, through I mean, ending up on Telemundo when you don't speak Spanish, to me is still a fantastic uh opportunity that I never would have expected. But our students depend on this because from this information, we knew how to help create a program that would benefit our university. I would never say CIQ at SMU, the way we do it, can work at Georgia Tech or Emory or another school like that, because what we've created has been for us. And that's the one message that we would say to any any colleague school is, the, one of the biggest flaws about diversity training is that we continually think we can buy it off the shelf and jerry-rig it 
for our campuses when it's got to address the needs of your particular campus. Speaking of particular campuses, you're in Texas. I am in Texas. Yeah, which means you're close to the Mexico border, Yeah, which also means immigration is a hot topic there. And yes. it's also a national topic right now. It's very contentious mm-hmm. um, with people in camps, being imprisoned in camps for very long periods. Um, so that's probably a sensitive topic on campus right now with both liberals and conservatives having different perspectives on that. How are you coping with that? Well, you know, honestly, Chris, across the board, um, there is dismay across both um, ideologies. And it's how can we participate? How can we make sure that these young children particularly, I think that's one thing that has helped on our campus, is that we are we are associated with um, a church, uh, the United Methodist Church, for good or for bad, um, that does help us frame some of these questions. So we're not just taking the political, we also take the theological, we also take the faith traditions of many of our students, and that's what motivates us. So that has that has allowed us to navigate the waters of immigration quite well. I will tell you that um, during election time, particularly the Senate race between Beto and Ted Cruz, it did get contentious on our campus. Um, We had a number of speakers who were not necessarily big fans of Beto, and we had a number of speakers who were not big fans of Ted Cruz. But what I found was the faculty, the staff, and the students came to the most important part of uh, cultural intelligence, which was civility, which was being present with our students, reminding them of the values of civility, that at the end of the day, yes, we all belong to different tribes, but we also belong to a larger tribe of SMU. And how are we going to work together after this is over? So while we have a lot of hot topics in in, and particularly Texas, Texas is just a bed of hot topics. That's because we're so hot during the summer. Um, I'm finding that on our campus, civility reigns. Um, the 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 best way I can say this is that a lot of campuses throughout Texas have had a lot of um, outside individuals coming to place white nationalists and white supremacist materials on campuses. They usually strike at dawn. Um, nobody sees them. And we've had it happen to us a number of times. The most impressive thing I can say is that um, an individual came on our campus They tried to do it on fraternity row, fraternity and sorority row, where they thought they would get the biggest impact. And what they found out was it was the fraternities and the sororities who had been trained in cultural intelligence, who called the police, removed the flyers, and made sure that individual knew they were no longer welcomed on our campus. That, to me, are those moments that I know that what we're doing is right. Right. And I think people have the stereotype of Texas as a conservative state, but the urban areas in Texas do tend to be somewhat close to 50-50 liberal conservative. I think people don't understand this about Texas, that we are literally sometimes five or six states within one. So 
um, while West Texas is its own state. I mean, it's literally the Western United States where there are not people, there are literal tumbleweeds crossing the the road. Um, That is more of the Wild West um, in the sense of these are folks who are having to defend their territory um, really on their own. Once you get past Midland in West Texas, there's nothing, no gas station, no anything. But when you're in Austin, Dallas, Houston, San Antonio, you have really purple cities, if not blue. So this is a state in which we are learning to live in a dual language kind of reality, not just Spanish and English, but we're also a huge capital, particularly Dallas, for Interians, for Somalis, um, for individuals from the Philippines and Korea. Um, So Dallas and Austin and San Antonio and Houston have had to become global cities. And that global nature is impacting the rest of the state. So we turn from red to purple to blue just in a matter of an hour or two's drive. And in terms of being a Methodist university, I mean, it's in your name, so you can't change that, I suppose, or can't change it easily. Um, no. How do you deal with the fact that the Methodist church has certain positions on immigration or gay rights, and students may have different positions on those issues? Well, first of all, we tell every student that we are non-sectarian, which means you don't have to be a Methodist to be a member of our university. And as a matter of fact, the largest denomination or faith um on our campus is Catholic, uh, which is to the chagrin of our Methodist bishops often. Um, But the other thing I would say is that the United Methodist Church is more than our our stance on sexuality. Uh, I'm a United Methodist clergy member. um, And so, no, I've not been pleased with the direction we've gone in. But I would say that our standards on immigration, our standards on women's rights, our standards on social justice, uh, healthcare, those things align a lot with uh, our student body. Now, I got to be honest with you, most of our students have no idea what the social principles of the United Methodist Church are. Um, I have to say, there's a lot of United Methodists who don't know what our social principles are. But the one that has gotten the most attention has been the one uh, that passed in um, February. And I can tell you that our president said unequivocally that we are a campus that affirms our LGBTQ students, faculty, and staff, and that nothing was going to change that. I think he delivered that message to the church. I think he delivered it to students. I think he delivered it to the community, that uh, the church's internal mechanisms will work out But as far as SMU is concerned, it is a place where all Mustangs are valued. And I think that's what we're going to hold to. And for our international listeners, can you describe this debate within the United Methodist Church in the United States right now? Well, one of the things that most people don't realize is that this is actually an international debate. It is a debate between the U.S. church and our churches in the Philippines, in uh, the continent of Africa, Russia, and East and Western Europe. It's how are we going to decide who gets to be uh, members of the clergy? 
How are we going to move along? What we have found is that many of our African uh, brothers and sisters, our Russian brothers and sisters, our Filipino brothers and sisters um, are more reticent or more conservative. Um, and that they've created a very natural alliance with our colleagues uh, that are in some of the portions of the South. Whereas if you were to break it down by a U.S. church, we'd be probably a much more opening, open, reconciling church. But because we are a global church, we must take into consideration the view of our colleagues across the world. And that's what happened in February. It was a close vote but it gave everyone voice. Um, and uh, in democracy, as I'm beginning to find out, uh, we love democracy when we win the vote. We hate democracy when we lose the vote. Um, one thing I love about being a Methodist, Chris, is that we can be reasonable. So we will continue to try to reason this out and figure out well, what does that mean next? Uh, are we going to be able to stay in fellowship together? Are we going to be able to work across these literally cultural differences? And that was the one thing I really loved about our meeting in February was you saw all of these different cultural languages being spoken. Who could speak? Who couldn't? Looking at how leadership was demonstrated by our, our folks in the Congo versus our folks from Russia um, and recognizing, and I had one of my students say, that person's Asian. How can they say they're Russian? I'm like, well, uh, if you think about Eastern Russia, um, that they are Asiatic. And I mean, so it was a learning lesson for so many of Methodists to recognize the different colors, the different varieties that we come in. So for our international listeners, you know, what I would say is this is where the rubber meets the road in terms of globalization of how do we begin to negotiate beyond just our national borders, but into the complexities of the way that we see the world, we see each other, and we see our, our different faiths. So moving to a completely different topic now, how do you teach students about cultural characteristics without being accused of stereotyping? I feel like people in the U.S. are pretty sensitive to the issue of stereotyping. It's, it's hard to even discuss accurate stereotypes. So as an Asian, I think it is pretty accurate that Asian parents, at least right now in this generation, um, really value academic achievement and put more pressure on their children to be high academic achievers. That might change in a generation or two, but right now that's pretty accurate. At the same time, some people don't like that stereotype. So whether it comes to that stereotype or other stereotypes, how do you talk about them? Well, one of the things that I think has been important for us to do is we have decided, again, to take this more as cultural tourism. Now, when I say that, I mean that we are allowing each group to speak to us as to what they think we should know to relate to them. So I don't try to write uh, our curriculum about Hispanic and Latinos by myself or I even be engaged in it. We have student staff and faculty who work together from different generations, different countries within Latin America, uh, as well as uh, European Spain, and have them help us understand what are the important things. So rather than trying to say, well, all Spaniards do this, or all Mexicans do this, we have asked them to say, 
if you were to give me a 20 minute course of what I would need to do not to tick you off and to be able to work more effectively with you, what would you say? And so by allowing people to tell their own stories has been more effective. We actually had a review of our Asian content last night. One of my students from China disagreed with the way that the entire committee had characterized Taiwan and Hong Kong. Um, Our committee, made up of scholars from China, from India, from Japan, from Korea, had said China and the countries of Taiwan and Hong Kong. This student from China said, no, Taiwan is a part of China. And I said, guys, what are we going to do with this? Because this is a legitimate claim. And I think those are the kind of things that we do in our program that may not be done anywhere else, is that we allow the community to create the content and to debate it out. So I don't sit, I don't sit in that room. I allow the individuals who've grown up, who've learned, who've taught, who live this reality to decide what the story they is they want to tell me as someone who knows nothing about their culture. So that's one way I think we inoculate ourselves from stereotypes. Because Chris, as an Asian male, you just told me something that is true. It's your story. People who typically get emotional about stereotypes are not usually, A, the people who are telling the narrative, and B, people who have fallen into stereotypes and don't want to admit it. That's what cultural intelligence requires. You now have 120 faculty and staff members involved with cultural intelligence, which is a lot. Yes. So how do you coordinate all of that? Uh, Some days with lots of coffee and other adult beverages. Uh, But one of the ways we do it is we have editorial chiefs. Uh, So I have an editorial chief that oversees the African-American component, the Hispanic component, the Asian and Middle Eastern component, and the white component. So I act as sort of an editor-in-chief. And I say, here's the content we need. I'm able to then uh, put the pedagogical legs around it. Um, But in order to get that kind of compliance and collaboration, I had to promise my colleagues that I wasn't going to be calling them every week, that they would have two weeks of intensive work that they had to do. And then we would leave them alone for the rest of the semester. So that's one. The second thing is we have now more than 120. We are close to 200 uh, when we add in our train the trainers. Um, and I have great assistants who help me do this. But I think it's what's been easy about it is because people have really bought into it and they want to be a part of it. Um, probably the more difficult part of managing things is the fact that we are getting more inquiries from other universities um, and school districts uh, who want to know how we can start this for them. And the thing we tell them is the same, that we want to make sure we get it right before we send it out to anyone else. And so we're on a slow trajectory. We're now in year three. We're going to go to year seven because we're going to test and retest and evaluate. Um, I think the other problem with diversity training has been people put together a group of slides, a couple of books and say, hey, we're ready. And nobody's tested. Nobody's evaluated. We want to do this right. Um, because we think that if we do it right, we can have better conversations on our campus. So managing all those different people is one, a pleasure. Two, I learn a lot. Um, And three, it creates buy-in. 
It creates buy-in at a level that I think most diversity programs on campus don't get because usually most diversity programs are done by four or five people who know nothing about the rest of the people. They've read it in books, but they've not allowed the people to speak for themselves. Well, thank you for joining us on the show. It's been great having you and all the best with the work you're doing at SMU. Hey, Chris, thank you. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you from uh, what uh, the Academy is doing for those of us who believe in viewpoint diversity. And I hope you have a great day. Thank you. Thank you very much. My next guest on Half Hour of Heterodoxy will be political philosopher Teresa Bejan, author of the 2017 book Mere Civility, Disagreement and the Limits of Toleration. Teresa is an associate professor of political theory at the University of Oxford. After that, we'll have Angie Maxwell, political scientist and director of the Diane D. Blair Center of Southern Politics and Society and professor at the University of Arkansas. Her upcoming book is The Long Southern Strategy, How Chasing White Voters in the South Changed American Politics. The book is co-authored by Todd Shields. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps other people find out about the show. As always, you can email me at podcast at heterodoxacademy.org, and you can find me on Twitter at chrismartin76. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Heterodox Academy. Find us online at heterodoxacademy.org, on Twitter at hdxacademy, and on Facebook. 